The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to the Electric Sheep Film Show on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. The track which opened tonight's show was Superman by Clark Kent, spelt with various K's and T's, to give you a flavour of the main interview which will be closing tonight's show. While cinema audiences are about to see a titanic tussle between the caped crusader and the Man of Steel in next month's Batman v Superman, a more intriguing Superman film was nearly made in the early noughties by Tim Burton, with Nicolas Cage in the leading role. Although this movie never got made, a fair amount of pre-production, including footage of Nicolas Cage trying on the supersuit, exists, and so some documentary filmmakers got in touch with everyone involved in the aborted film to try and find out what happened. That's coming up in half an hour, also in tonight's show... I'm talking to Tony Todd, best known as the antagonist in the Candyman movies, who's reteamed with the director of Candyman, Bernard Rose, for a new adaptation of Frankenstein, which brings Mary Shelley's classic novel Kicking and Screaming into the present day, including such innovations as a 3D printed monster and the creature becoming a homeless man on the streets of L.A. To start off with, I'm talking to filmmaker and film festival curator Jasper Sharp, who's here to talk about the upcoming Asia House Film Festival, which starts on the 22nd of February and is a celebration of new cross-cultural Asian film from across the continent, featuring 15 movies, which are a mixture of animation, feature films, documentaries and shorts. Well, I'm the artistic director of the okay. festival, so I'm, I'm in charge of the entire programme. 
um, since, uh, well, I ran last year's festival and, and this is my second year mm. doing it. So we have a selection of features and, and a few documentaries and we've got a day after that on the uh, 5th of March is a one-day event called Singaporeana mm. at the Cinema Museum down in Elephant Castle where we're showing three films uh, either British or, or Hollywood productions from the 60s or 70s, um, which were set in, in Singapore as, as a way of looking at how uh, Western cinema viewed Singapore and, and by extension the whole of sort of um, the Far East during that sort of period and, and having a bit of a panel debate around that to see mm. how it's changed. So um, films we're showing... Uh, well, off 35 millimetre actually we've got two we've got Pretty Polly which is an old Hayley Mills um, comedy uh, drama from the late 60s we've got The Virgin Soldiers with like a British version of MASH set in Singapore uh, during the Malaysian crisis and then the exciting one is uh, Peter Bogdanovich's St Jack which hasn't been screened for many 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 years here in the UK so we've got a new HD sort of restoration of that Hmm. Um, with Ben Ben Gazzara as like American who's trying to set up a string of brothels all around uh, around Singapore. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, so that's just the Singapore Day. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so basically, the Singapore Day is um, it sort of ties into the broader theme of the entire festival. So the, the main theme of the entire festival is breaking boundaries, and we're trying to look at this idea of borderless Asia. Hmm. Um, firstly, as an attempt to sort of redefine that idea of like uh, we have Europe and Asia and we're all very different, you know, as Asia being defined as something which is not the West. Um, so, because I mean, a lot of the time when we talk about Asia, especially in the cinematic context, we're usually thinking about stuff like Korea or Japan or Hong Kong hmm. or, or maybe India. But obviously, Asia is a massive continent, um, many different cultures, many different religions, and many different film industries there. Um, so only Asia House Film Festival would do an Asia Film Festival and show films from Kazakhstan and mm. Uzbekistan and um, Mongolia and places like that. Um, so we've also got... Uh, well, the other idea is this, this idea of borderless Asia. A lot of these films will explore these ideas of, of sort of transnationalism or, or sort of um, globalization. So, uh, what we look at the, the two documentaries, for example, we've got State of Play, uh, which is about uh, video gaming in South Korea, the uh, competitive e-gaming tournaments mm. um, where people will be competing with people against the, the entire world and, and uh, you know, you'd be playing these games with people who might not be in the same room as you, so it's um, not even the same country as you, so uh, it's a sort of um, again, taking a very broad look at sort of um, you know, different cultures interacting and um, the other one being Life from UB which is a documentary about Mongolia's sort of rock music scene. Um, mm. And I guess a lot of people would scratch their head and go, well, Mongolia has a rock <laughs> music scene. Um, and it does. And it was, you know, this is a fascinating documentary. I mean, obviously, um, Mongolia used to be a Soviet satellite country. So, I mean, it, it was uh, obviously quite an authoritarian regime. And so at the time when all the sort of Beatles and Bowie and everyone was coming up in the West, um, this sort of music was sort of, uh, wasn't necessarily, Mostly released in uh, Mongolia at the time, but it snuck through, and there were a whole host of local bands that sort of um, followed the 
sort of trends from America and, and Britain and other countries uh, around the world and develop their own sort of very distinctive Mongolian style of music, uh, which, um, you know, nowadays it's like uh, where how is it sort of formed by inter being integrated with its own sort of musical traditions? So mm. I think there's one character in the film who says, you know, well, we're under no delusions, Mongolian music is not going to take over the world. So I guess the thing that we can do is at least be better than everyone else in, in terms of appealing to Mongolian audiences. Mm. And with, with both of those films and indeed some of the others that you're showing, the director is going to be coming over to do a Q&A. That's right. Actually, both of those films we've got, uh, well, with the live from UB, the, the Mongolian music film, we've got Lauren that will be doing a Skype Q&A, and okay. that's, that's going to be all at Asia House itself. With Stephen Dutt, who's a Belgian director for State of Play, he'll be coming over for mm. Q&A with that. Um, with the feature films as well, we've got, uh, well, two other directors, Benson Lee, who will be there with his film Soul Searching, which is about... Um, sort of American Korean uh, teens sort of drawn back to their, they go back to learn, to Seoul to learn about uh, Korean culture in the, in the 80s. It was based on a true story and he sort of transformed this sort of real life event that happened in the 80s um, from his own experiences because he did this when he was a teenager um, and um, sort of done it in the style of a John Hughes style um sort of teen com comedy sort of writer passage movie from the 80s uh, mm. very very sort of uh, nostalgic soundtrack mm. and yeah so he'll be there to uh, do the Q&A and introductions for that and then we've got Zhang Wei uh, the Chinese director of Factory Boss which is um, a drama about a, a guy who's um, runs a, a a toy factory is making dolls for the American market and you know what with the economic fluctuations and falling demand price you know the, the Americans played this really unreasonable demand on his factory and it's about how, how he really struggles to keep the, the factory sort of um, running against sort of staff strikes and, and uh, bad press about him running a sweatshop and, and it's a really good look at the what it's like to be on the inside of a sweatshop culture where you, you know, people criticize all these sort of um, places that make cheap clothes or cheap toys or whatever, but uh, at the end of the day, we all use them. So mm. this idea of uh, how from a manufacturing point of view, you know, we're all... Culpable. All dependent, yes, culpable, and, and mm. the, everyone's dependent on what's going on in other parts of the world. So, uh, mm. and... Uh, yeah, so that's... Uh, and then we've also got the director um, of uh, Canadian-Afghan uh, <laughs> co-production, um, Mina Walking. So Joseph Baraki, he's going to be doing a Q&A. He's, he's based in Canada. Um, but this is uh, the film that's actually set in Afghanistan. He, he filmed it in Afghanistan. Um, only 26 years old, I just found out so today, in fact, the director so he was actually there shooting this sort of drama about a girl trying to keep her family apart by sort of working on the streets while trying to get an education um very much in the style of like sort of uh iranian directors like kurisbani and, mm. and um the Maqabath, uh, dynasty um so yeah um yeah and it's fascinating because i mean you, you think you know what's going on in afghanistan this gives a very vivid portrait on the 
advice on the streets. I don't think we get many portraits of what Afghan life is right nowadays. Mm, no, indeed. You spoke yeah. about how um, the theme of the festival is kind of cross-cultural connections. Um, with a variety yeah. of the films you're showing, they're accompanied by a short. Um, and reading the programme, there don't seem to be obvious links between some of the shorts and some of the films they're accompanying. And so when you're curating something <laughs> like that, uh, what are the choices that you make when you think this short will go very well with this movie? Uh, well, I, I like to think that they do sort of accompany each other. I mean, I guess it's like having a starter before a meal. Isn't mm. it? Um, so I'm trying to, I mean, in, in tone, they go very well. So for example, we've got an anime film, The Case of Hannah and Alice, mm. you know, Japanese animation motion to why, And we're saying before that, there's a Saudi Arabian animation um, but both have actually quite similar themes in terms of um, focus on young female protagonists. So, And I think the thing is, it's like people obviously know what they're getting when they go to see an anime film. So anime has always got a very fixed audience of its own. Um, but uh, would any of these people have seen a, you know, a, a, small, a short animation directed by a Saudi Arabian mm. woman before? So I think that's a good thing. It's to actually use the... the main feature to get people in to watch the shorts but I think they do complement each other um, for me the, the really good short as well is uh, Panchagavya um, which is about it's a documentary about cows <laughs> in India so um, if anyone who's been to India would have seen just cows wandering around everywhere you know they just they live on the streets and, and you know you scratch your head and go how do these things survive and does anyone look after them and uh, this film goes to um, some way to explaining that it's actually quite an eye-popping film, you know, India from a cow's eye level. <laughs> um, and that's that's going alongside a uh, film called The Monk. Um, so I, I think because the cow is considered a holy animal in India, and we've got The Monk, which is about uh, Buddhism in Myanmar, um, uh, the, the drama about a young Buddhist boy sort of losing his faith. And I think they sort of um, have a similar sort of... Uh, of the films as well mm, cool when we were exchanging um emails uh before doing this interview i noticed that you directed a documentary a couple of years ago um the creeping garden and i was just wondering oh, yes. is, is that uh, <laughs> is that any closer to getting a release in the uk Yes, it is. We've signed a contract that will be coming out uh, sometime this year. Uh, a pretty big distributor, well, I can't really say who it is at the moment, but that will definitely, this, it's finally coming to the UK because we've actually been pushing for it some time. And it's actually getting, um, in March, it's going on the on its digital release in North America. Um, so it's, it's definitely going to be out there now. Cool. And it's all about the phenomenon of slime mould. That's right, slime moulds. More about uh, not only about slime moulds in itself, but the uh, crazy amount of research which is being done on them. So mm. there's uh, looking at the slime mould through the eyes of the sort of various eccentric researchers who are doing things with it. So um, you know you've got artists who work with it as an artistic medium. You've got amateur slime moulds. Uh, hunters who just crawl around the forest and, and will be able to identify any species. And you've got people like computer scientists using it as a virtual model to do various things like, um, I don't know, control robots with or play music with. Mm. So it's it's uh, 
sort of starting point around this alien looking sort of really unfamiliar blob and then by the end of the film you see that it actually has all sorts of hidden aspects and, and uses that you never knew hmm. uh, at the risk of making connections that aren't necessarily there but since we've been talking about uh, the asia house film festival and the creeping garden i was wondering yeah. if you were influenced by kinji fukusaku's film uh, the green slime <laughs> or just <laughs> <laughs> actually no that's one of the ones um i did actually show that when i was running zipang fest uh, a couple of years ago we did a screening of green slime um and yeah obviously it's like if you one of the screenings we had in North America as well, the Creeping Garden, they did it on a double bill with the green slime. Cool. But I think there's definitely been a, there was some Japanese influence came through. Um, the sort of Buddhism uh, and God in everything, and it's a very sort of hypnotic look at uh, nature without necessarily giving any emphasis to the human side of things within nature. Hmm. Cool. Well, I hope someone programs that double bill over here. That sounds great. <laughs> well, it is, should be fairly easy to do, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So info about all of the uh, the main screenings at Asia House are on the Asia House uh, website. The um, Singapore uh, strand at the Cinema Museum, where can we find information about that? Well, so the, the main program... Um, Asia House that runs from the 22nd of February to the 28th. So that's on the Asia House website. Uh, and uh, it's also doubled up on the Regent Street Cinema website because ah. we're screening all those films in, in Regent Street. Um, so if you look on asiahouse.org or the Regent Street Cinema, their program at the end of this month. Um, and the Cinema Museum one that's also should be up on the Asia House Film uh, Festival website. But if, cool. again, if you look at the, um, the Cinema Museum website, it's on at the 5th of March. Um, and uh, yeah, that's going to be a fun day. Actually. I'm looking forward to that. Cool. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Well, my pleasure. For more information about the Asia House Film Festival, please go to asiahouse.org stroke events, which includes information about the various movies screening at the Regent Street Cinema between the 22nd of February and the end of the first week in March as well as the celebration of Singapore on screen that's taking place at the Cinema Museum in Southwark. For more info about Jasper's movie The Creeping Garden, please go to creepinggarden.com, and I for one hope it will show in the UK, especially on a double bill with Kinji Fukusaku's The Green Slime. From one kind of monster of nature to another, I'm talking about the new version of Frankenstein directed by Bernard Rose, which co-stars his former Candyman collaborator Tony Todd in the iconic role of the blind man who takes in Frankenstein's monster and shows him some humanity. So this new movie that you're in, it's uh, a modern-day adaptation of Frankenstein uh, directed by Bernard Rose, who you worked with on Candyman many years ago. And one thing that I found very interesting about this film, and indeed an element it shares with Candyman, is uh, Bernard's sense of uh, social commentary that he works into the film. That when you encounter the monster, in inverted commas, he's kind of taken on the role of a homeless man who's become kind of rejected by society. Was that an aspect of this version that appealed to you, or did Bernard literally just ring you up and say, I'd like you to appear in it? No, we, well, he did ring me up. Uh, I mean, we've maintained our friendship over the 23 years since Candyman. Mm. But, uh, I, my manager actually brought the project, this project, to my attention. And he says, "Would you be even interested?" Because it was, you know, 
wasn't uh, necessarily in my quote. Uh, but, you know, I don't necessarily choose everything based on what my quote is or for money. I have to choose it, A, based on the personality, the people involved, and the character. Hmm. Uh, so the homeless factor very much appealed to me. I wanted to, in L.A., 10% of our population is homeless, and hmm. we've got another 5% who are homeless and don't know it. Um, so there, uh, you know, there's an African-American man, and unfortunately African-Americans are a large part of the homeless population. It matters to me, and I wanted to be able to have this is one character that perhaps I can, uh, you know, bring dignity to that condition. Bernard and I met for lunch, and we talked, and we made sure we were on the same page about the, the simplicity of the moments and where we were going and the non-exploitation factor. And we, we both agreed that it would be wonderful to, to, to go back to the creative pocket. So there we were, and um, I'm, I'm proud of Eddie, the, the homeless uh, blind blues musician. Mm. I have a lot of blues musician friends, and I consult them because I'm not a singer first. And uh, they said, go for it. We'll be proud. We'll hear you do it, boy. <laughs> and uh, the next thing you know, after several counseling sessions, what we did is what, what is there for all time. So <laughs> I'm sure I'm going to be getting a lot of calls once it's released. Because <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think... You I'm... did it wrong. You needed to put that other course in. You did it. You got you, you to... Gotta, come on, now. All that stuff. Yeah. Because I was going to say, I don't think I've ever recalled you uh, singing or playing guitar in a previous film. No, that's, and that's the beauty of acting for me. I'm not a personality-driven actor, so I try to choose characters. I'm a character actor, hmm. a working character actor. And every film I do, if you can go look at my IMDb, you'll see that every character is completely different than the one before. That's my goal. I'm, I get bored. That's why I've always avoided television in terms of a regular role on television. I have too many friends that have been on successful films or successful television, and when you talk to them at the supermarket, they're just kind of numbly going through the motion and picking out what asparagus tastes the best. So, da, da, da. so are you happy? Well, I'm making a lot of money, but God, the script is god-awful. <laughs> and I, I never wanted to do that. Now, I'm sure, you know, my agents would probably hate me for saying that because they're really excited about this upcoming pilot season. Um, but, you know, we'll see. Hmm. Even on television, I've been lucky. I've been able to choose television shows that were at least uh, exciting and, and that the public embraced. Mm. Like you said, um, you're a character actor, and the part of uh, the blind man who befriends the monster is a very important part of the mythology of Frankenstein, which I don't think is in enough of the adaptations. But as it's in this no. version, it means that you're following in the footsteps of actors such as Jean Rochefort, Gene Hackman, Richard Briers, who have all played the blind man in previous adaptations of Frankenstein. Did you consciously avoid their interpretations or were you conscious of some oh, of the previous ones? Oh, you know ones? what? In, in The Bride of Frankenstein, who was that? Oh, gosh, I'm not sure. That one I'd have to look up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, because that's the one that I remember. I've never seen the, 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 the uh, Gene Hackman version. Was that mm. in the De Niro's Frankenstein? Uh, it was actually in Young Frankenstein in the comedy version, but he, oh, but he plays okay, it straight, right. you know. Okay. <laughs> that's funny. That's what made it funny, right? Yeah. Uh, no, once, I mean, I remember seeing the original or James Wells version when I was nine and uh, and loving it. And I never was threatened by it. I never didn't take it as horror. I took it as, I was raised an only child. So he became one of my imaginary friends. That's, you know, 
the key to Frankenstein or the monster is that he's lovable. He's lovable. He, he's hopeless. He's helpless, and he's an oversized kid in a you know in a technological world. So I remember in the Bride of Frankenstein, the Hermit character being there. But once I agreed to do this, I didn't want to watch either the original, or the Bride of Frankenstein, which is one of my favorite films. Period. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably one of the most successful sequels ever made. Um, and because uh, you don't want to be, you know, you just go on memory, and then you want to make it your own. Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Hyde are two of the most, you know, done horror, if you will, mm. characters ever in the history of film. Unfortunately, with Frankenstein, a lot of them are horrible. But uh, I trusted Bernard, and mm. I trusted his source material, and I knew, to me, the, the deciding factor was that the, the Adam, the monster, was his simplicity was evident in the script, and then the audience could hear his super id doing the actual, some of the actual text of Mary Shelley. That, to me, was what was poignant about it. Mm. And Xavier Samuel's work, I knew once I met him and I saw what he was doing and what he had to put up with the prosthetics and the fearlessness of that, I knew we had something special. Mm. And all I had to do was show up, be there, (laughs) moment to moment, try to adopt him as a son. And uh, I knew that downtown L.A. with this tall, blind, homeless blues musician trying to maintain his dignity with his white suit, yet tattered and, and, and dirty, you know, with the with the monster, quote-unquote, by his side, pushing a shopping cart was worth its weight in the mission. Mm. No, it's a very powerful image and a, an interpretation of the monster that we've never seen on screen. And I was going to say, we, you spoke earlier about, you know, uh, the homeless in L.A., and another aspect of the role that we've never seen before is to see, you know, Frankenstein's monster being beaten up by police, which again, you know, adds an additional amount of social realism and resonance to it. Yeah, because when we shot that, all this stuff in Ferguson and Cleveland and Baltimore had yet to happen. Mm. So it was like, so when I first saw the cut with the agents and stuff, I said, okay, this is something beyond even what you expect. And that's when filmmaking is good. You know what you do when you're on the set. If you've worked as a director for you know kind of where they're thinking, but you never know what's going to happen in terms of time and place. You know, here we are in 2016, and I think the the time is right. I just wish we had gotten a theatrical release, but Mm -hmm. it's okay because that other Frankenstein got one, right? One that was just out. (laughs) Yeah. Victor, was it? (laughs) I didn't go down too well. And we see what it became of that. But it got the theatrical, that's all I'm saying. Mm. <laughs> um, but I think this movie is going to find its life. I mean, I know the fans are waiting for it, and I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be one of those films that, like, uh, hopefully, that spreads like wildfire. I'm not a psychic, but I, I got a good feeling here. Mm. Well, and also within kind of Bernard's um, career, you know, he, he does have a great reputation for adaptations of classic literature. And so I guess that might be one of the audience that it finds, you know, on, on DVD and on demand. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, he's got a very intelligent audience out there. If you, you know, you know the work, Dana Karina. Uh, just a very bright, smart, gifted filmmaker, one of my favorite and a friend. Mm. Um, and and the fact, one of the things that makes it special, Bernard is actually operating the camera Mm. doing handheld camera work and even though he had a DP on the set he insisted on being he he's a director that views himself as a spectator in the room you know so which 
spreads to the actors because the work becomes more conversational and less presentational, mm. you know, which is important because it allows intimacy. Yeah. As we mentioned earlier, you first uh, collaborated with Bernard on Candyman. And while uh, that's a film that people remember for your performance as the sort of supernatural agent, it's also a film that has a degree of social realism, that it has this undercurrent looking at the way that people are divided geographically within cities and different sort of social strata are sort of being pushed apart by urban planning. And I think that's, you know, a really interesting aspect of the film that isn't discussed as much as it should. No, you're absolutely right. In addition to the whole interracial love affair part, which the studio was very adamant about trying to squelch, hmm. there's a scene that we was never in Candyman that one day Bernard jokes he's going to put in that the studio was very nervous about. And it occurs when she finally goes to his loft and he sweeps her in his arms and there's that great turntable moment. But that turntable moment was a little longer than what they than what they allowed. One day, because at its core, that's it's a love story, you know, mm. it's a gothic love story, but it's a it's a phantom of the opera. Mm. And I suppose, in a way, you were cursed with the reputation of films being remembered for the killer as much as anything else. That they brought you back for two sequels, but actually, the film suggests that it's uh, her character who should become the Candyman going forwards. Absolutely, mm. that's and that was, I think, the original intention. Um, you know, who, who knows what they'll do with the mythology in years to come. <laughs> but uh, I'm happy with, uh, certainly with the first two, and, mm. uh, and uh, just having it on my resume. Mm. But I don't, I don't want it to go down as the epitome of my resume. Oh, no. I, I'm still working for things that will put it down, knock it down to the fifth or sixth, maybe. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that lives for me in, in my theater work. Mm. Well, another film, in a way, that Frankenstein recalls because it's kind of your relationship with a man who has a zombie-like quality, who is kind of a reanimated blank slate. It kind of recalls the fact that another one of your um, formative movies was the remake of Night of the Living Dead. I mean, is that a film that has special resonance with you? Because it is a remake of a film, you know, that actually had a very powerful black performance in it and perhaps opened up additional doors to um, black actors. Absolutely. I first saw the original Night of the Living Dead when I was in high school. And in high school is when I knew I wanted to be an actor. Mm. You know, I had this huge growth spurt between uh, ninth and 10th grade. And so I was totally useless to the athletic department, even though I was tall and da-da-da. But an English teacher came to my rescue, and she gave me a copy of The, of the Tempest. And uh, it was like, I don't know, like a light bulb went off. And from that <laughs> moment on, theater was my first lover and my only lover and my last lover. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, I uh, would not living dead. I, and so I saw the black-and-white version at a drive-in theater, and I said, okay. So there's Dwayne Jones on camera. I mean, I've been aware of Sidney Poitier and stuff. I said, there's, this is more active to me. And I said, okay, my, my career choice isn't crazy because my family, of course, wanted to be a lawyer, a doctor, and <laughs> really interested in body parts in either form. And, uh, and uh, so that gave me push, and I went on and got my MFA in theater and stuff. And uh, when, the, when the remake came along, um, you know, I, I lobbied for it. I, it was a Saturday in Pittsburgh. I met Tom Sabini, 
kind of without an appointment, sort of cornered him in the office and, and did a monologue, like, without being asked. <laughs> and uh, by that Monday, I had the role. So I always remember Tom Savini, another good friend of mine. See, this is uh, for a lot of, like, young actors and actors, period. I got to tell you people something. You have to form relationships with your directors, just like mm. John Houston and Humphrey Bogart. That means repeated work, a genuine friendship, not fake friendship. You know, have so you form a sort of shorthand when you're on the set, uh, a look, a glance, a word, sometimes enough to get what you both need to get for that character. It's not about the ego, it's about the work at hand. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the remake of Night of Living Dead. It's, again, one of my first lead roles, and uh, between Candyman and that, I guess for some horror fans, that's enough. <laughs> and now we got another cousin popping up his ugly head. Frankie baby. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and finally, after I think five or six years in production, um, you reprised uh, the role of Ben for an animated uh, prequel reimagining of Night of the Living Dead that started to tour the festivals. Um, was right. it a role that you were keen to come back to, thinking, well, actually, yeah, as I've got that. another opportunity, I can do something new? Yeah, exactly. Well, I love Ben. Okay, mm. so that came along 20 years after doing Ben the first time. So obviously, those of us that are lucky to have 20 years in between things, <laughs> okay, hopefully you have more life experiences that may, if not change, adjust your point of view towards humanity. So yeah, I was definitely... The sad thing about this Origins project, I have yet to see it. Mm. I've been asking them to send me a copy. I haven't seen it yet. Have you seen it? I haven't, no. Yeah, exactly. Very few. <laughs> I'm waiting to see who's seen it. I mean, I know it's available on Amazon and stuff, but I'm waiting for them to send me my copy so I can at least keep it for my records. Mm. Um, but I was happy. Again, I've been doing a lot of half of my work now. 40% of my work is voice work. So I was able to, uh, you know, um, modify my experience in that medium. Mm. Are you guys in England, are you with The Flash? Are you guys in season one or season two? Um, or you even get that over there? No, I think season two has started over here. Oh, it's just started. Okay, yeah. you know, I'm doing Zoom on that. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Ah. Fine. I mean, I was a single only kid. I mean, comic books were my first friend. War <laughs> games were my second, you know. <laughs> the Backyard Creatures is my third. Hmm. Well, and it does seem that you're kind of often going back to kind of pop culture zeitgeist, you know, whether it's Night Living Dead, whether it's comic books, because another string to your bow um, is you appeared in a Star Trek fan film, uh, Prelude to XNR. Was that, you know, uh, something that you had a fondness for as a franchise? Well, uh, Star Trek universe has been very, 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 very good to me. Mm. Uh, you know, I've been able to do a very notable Klingon. The Axonaut project came along, um, you know, uh, friends of mine suggested I do it. I got to play Federation. However, I'm no longer involved with that project, so. Okay. The, the, the least said, the better. Right, okay. <laughs> um, so now that uh, another iconic horror role has come along for you, do you think you'll be turning the genre again soon? Or the fact that, in a way, it's slightly pigeonholed you as an actor from time to time? Well, you is know, it... if you look at my resume, it's 40% has been sci-fi horror. Mm. Uh, so, I, you know, I got over 175 credits. So mm. uh, whenever I feel too pigeonholed, I go back to the theater. Mm. You can always go to the classics and, I don't know, there's a fellow horror character. Mm. Uh, 
Um, uh, no, I'm not. I never worry about it. I'm lucky to be working. You know, acting is one of the most precarious professions on the planet. Hmm. So my career has been going now for almost 30 years, and I'm happy and I'm proud about it. Um, my first film was Platoon, Oliver Stone. Hmm. And every single person in that cast has gone on to a different, various career journey. And, um, and you know, I take it as a compliment. Yeah. And I'm ha- I love acting, so whatever medium it is, is, uh, is, is I'm, I'm honored to be a part of. Hmm. Well, and, and now that we've uh, heard you sing and play guitar, maybe there'll be more of that in your future. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Uh, yeah, there's some good stuff coming. I mean, we've got five films, including Frank Sinek, coming out this year. Cool. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm going to be able to announce something very important very soon about something completely different. Hmm. Cool. That I can't talk about yet, but it's just the ink isn't dry. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much for finding the time to talk to me, and it's uh, it's been a great pleasure to have a chat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. All right, you too. Bye Cheers. Bye. Frankenstein, directed by Bernard Rose, is released on Blu-ray and DVD on the 22nd of February and is well worth a watch. And to close the first half of the show, here's some music on the theme of Mary Shelley's classic monster. Come on, everybody, hey. Oh, when are you getting there? They tell me that you're falling on chance. 
You're listening to the Electric Sheep Film Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. The track you've just heard is Frankenstein Twist by The Crystals to coincide with the new Frankenstein movie directed by Bernard Rose. If you're a fan of Resonance FM and would like to help keep the station on the air and such fine programmes as The Bike Show, Panel Borders, One Life Left, OST and many others for years to come, please think about donating to the Resonance fundraiser and auction which is taking place all this week. Film-related items, which will be auctioned shortly by Resonance FM, include a signed poster for the film Dogma by Kevin Smith and production art from the original Spider-Man movie drawn and signed by Bernie Wrightson, best known for his classic run on DC Comics' Swamp Thing title. Other multimedia items, which will be in the Resonance FM auction, include a series of audiobooks featuring dramatizations of Sherlock Holmes, including Holmes vs. the Ripper by Brian Clemens, creator of The Avengers, and a trilogy of Doctor Who CDs featuring the novel companion, Bernie Summerfield, as played by Lisa Bowerman, appearing opposite Sylvester McCoy and Paul McGann's Doctors. For more information about the Resonance FM fundraiser, please go to fundraiser.resonance.fm or to go directly to the eBay page, please go to ebay.co.uk stroke sch stroke resonance fm auction. For the second half of tonight's show, you're going to hear a Q&A that I conducted at the BFI as part of last year's Sci-Fi London Film Festival with the director, John Schnepp, producer Holly Payne, and executive producer Robert Pierce of the new documentary The Death of Superman Lives which explores a movie about the Man of Steel, which would have been directed by Tim Burton and released at the beginning of this century, but fell apart after only a few months of pre-production. An intriguing alternate view of Superman that would have starred Nicolas Cage as the Man of Steel, the documentary is well worth a watch, and hopefully you'll get an idea of how bizarre and intriguing the movie might have been with my Q&A with the documentary filmmakers. One thing I found watching that movie was that before seeing the documentary, I had a vague idea about Superman Lives and thought it sounds like an interesting project. And then watching your documentary, I'm now like gutted that we didn't get to see it. So Excellent. <laughs> presumably that was one of your intents. Uh, yeah, just it just came about that way. I mean, it wasn't my intent to like make you guys all sorrow, sorrowful and like, oh, I wish the film got made. But sort of in making it, that's how you end up feeling because you see all of this incredible creativity and everyone's team spirit and then... It just gets shut down. So, yeah, it's kind of a sorry, guys. Like, but <laughs> how did you first hear about it? Uh, well, I, I would, like most people, um, you know, I heard about like you know Kevin writing this, the screenplay, Tim getting hired, Nick Cage getting hired, and then it just went away. And then I saw some of the concept art in two thousand one, I believe, uh, both in some magazines and online, and it, it interested me because it had this kind of a heavy metal kind of different look to it. It didn't look like the comic books and it didn't look like the other Superman movies. It had like a different quality to it. So I remembered that years later after, you know, watching Kevin's, uh, you know, college tour, mm. I saw Superman Returns and that was like that Richard Donner uh, version of Superman, which I first thought sounded cool, but then upon seeing it fell asleep twice in the theater. 
uh, Holly had to wake me up. And literally, I remember I was like, God, I was so bored. I could barely remember the movie. But it made me think about this version of Superman. I was like, at least this one had Brainiac. It didn't have Lex Luthor buying land again. It didn't have all this, the same. It had that sameness to it where I wanted something different. So, you know, a few years later, I ended up meeting Steve Johnson. Uh, We were at a concert. And then I ended up hanging out with some friends and mentioned I had been collecting these, uh, like, on a folder on my desktop, I had just been collecting Superman Lives concept art. Every couple of months, I'd just search online to see if any new stuff had you know shown up, and that, that I did that for a couple of years. And some friends were like, "You should make a documentary. It sounds really interesting." And I was like, "I don't make documentaries." And someone else said, "Do it on Kickstarter," because I had raised money to do this animated kind of heavy metal cartoon on Kickstarter the year before, and. You know, the idea wouldn't leave me alone. And I was like, you know, no one else is going to make this. So why shouldn't I should just try making it and do it on Kickstarter and see it if there's other people interested in it. And if there are, then I'll make it. So it was kind of like it was a gauntlet that I threw at the, you know, the Kickstarter crowdsourcing community. And they answered by saying, here's some money. Mm. So then I was like, all right, I'm going to make it. But it took a lot longer to make because uh, I'm used to script, uh, you, you know, directing scripted stuff. Documentaries, you have no control you have to ask people to be in your thing it's not like you're hired it's like would you be in this it's different Mm. so it takes a lot longer and people are like "Mm, i'm not so sure it took a really long time to get a bunch of people it also took a longer time to get a lot of the artists didn't want to just like get on film and start talking about stuff unless unless tim burton was talking about it which makes sense it's like hey that's the guy that hires me talk to him first then i'll talk so it was like this kind of waiting game with a lot of different of the people that you've seen in the film Mm. so I mean, he was getting increasingly reticent towards the end of your interview to continue talking about it. Was it hard to get him in the first place to talk? Uh, Tim? Yeah. Um, well, that's the use of creative editing. He wasn't reticent to talk about it. But okay. um, uh, it, it did take a while to, to actually get to him. Yeah, it took over a year and a half. Um, and I ended up getting an, a letter to him by someone just outside who knew, like, sent me a, a letter. And they said, hey, I'm a fan of this project i'm working on this uh, tv show that's right across from where they're shooting big eyes here's the production manager's number and their email i don't want to get fired so i can't do anything else so i wrote the production manager of big eyes this long you know letter like hey i'm making this film blah 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 and sent it left a message Mm. and then a couple weeks later i get a response from Derek fry who's uh, tim burton's executive producer and he wrote he's like tim knows about your project doesn't know if he wants to be involved but can you wait for a couple months, like maybe six months, and he'll think about it? And I was like, oh, dude, I'll wait forever. You know, it's, it's <laughs> Tim Burton, Superman Lives, yes. Yeah. So then, you know, I had to wait six months. And then the, after that six months, he was like, hey, he's going to have an opening in five months. So it was like towards the end of the, the, the following year in March, uh, can you, you know, he doesn't know, but he wants to meet you. So we, Holly and I flew out uh, and uh, ended up meeting with him. And then he, he liked us, and he said, yeah, I'll do the interview. So then we did the interview two days later. Uh, Kevin Smith was the same way. Like, it mm. took, like, a, a year and a half to get him. So. Mm. Although I, I've heard that anecdote of his about the no-flying, no-suit giant uh, spider thing. So he's, he's been kind of touring the globe doing that. And I think that was one of the ways that I actually found out mm-hmm. about Superman Lives. Um, both you and Kevin speak about how the internet now and kind of the prototype trolls in angry basements, you know, destroy the kind of movies that have a quirky edge to them. And yet, ironically, it's the internet and the interest in this film that has allowed your documentary to be made. So it's, I guess, a double-edged sword. It is, but I mean, it is one of those things where people still come up to me and say, man, you really dodged a bullet, can't wait to see this, and laugh at it. And then it's like, so they don't, a lot of people come in thinking one thing and then they leave thinking the other. So it's kind of like a a really cool brainwashing technique that we've uh, found out how to do it, you know, with this film. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, 
That's kind of the the world we live in now. It's like the golden age of comic books. You know, like eight or nine movies every year for the in, at, for the infinite future. You're going to see like a bunch of superhero stuff. Um, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it, it it's gonna it's gonna allow a lot of creativity to, to get through there. I mean, you'll be a, maybe have a chance to see something like a Superman Lives, but done with a different kind of character, something totally creative or different. But mm. well, the fact that you animated portions of it and you got actors to um, act out parts of it, we got glimpses of what it might have been like. You obviously had to pay various permission rights to talk about the film and show props mm -hmm. when it came to actually animating it. How did you get the permission to do that from Warner's? Because you well, think that sort of thing would be almost impossible. It, it is almost impossible. <laughs> um, it's a really cool thing. It's two words: fair use. It's a. Uh, I read this doctrine way before we even started the production. I'm going to help out here. Yeah, please do. Yeah. No, I was going to introduce them in a second. Um, fair use is a, a thing that you basically is a transformative tool for documentarians to use to be able to use footage like you saw footage of Superman or Batman mm. when you're using it by, as an example. So you always see that in documentaries when they cut away like, as in this movie, and then you'll hear them talking about it, but you'll see clips of the film. In the same way, as they're talking about a scene from a script, you can then show in a demonstration as an example mm. a very few a few seconds of the scene from the script if there's con concept art and this and that. So that was a way to get around it. Let me introduce Holly Payne. She was a producer on the film. Hello. Hi. <laughs> yes, and I would also like to introduce our executive producer, Rob Pierce. <laughs> it's a very tiny crew that worked on this film. Uh, total of maybe, s well, the core crew was about six people. Um, it was myself, John, obviously, the director, uh, extraordinaire, and then uh, our editor, Marie Homora, who's amazing, and our technical producer, Christopher Graybill. Um, and that was about that was about it for, and then various, you know, Cameramen and but this is the core team and so it was two and a half years working on this and uh, Trying to piece together a story that we didn't know we had until we until the, the door was open with Tim Burton mm. And then everything else sort of started to fall into place mm. um, But really once we got John Peters was when I was like <laughs> BAM. Oh my god Now it's a now it's a <laughs> movie. Oh my god, so that was uh, that was really. And that was a month. That was actually a month before we locked picture. So before wow. we premiered this in May, the month before we interviewed John Peters and had to re break the entire film part and put it back together. Mm -hmm. But it was worth it. For years after doing all these interviews, everyone kind of had a negative spin on John Peters, and so I started to develop that. I was like, I don't want to talk to him. He doesn't need to be in the movie. And Holly kept saying, no, he has to be in the movie. He's got to be in the movie. And I was like, no, but secretly still trying to get him. Well, you know, so, right to reply and all that. Yeah, eventually I talked to his attorney. <laughs> and that was the way I got to him. I got to his attorney, hey, your client, I'd like him in my film. And then I talked to him for like 45 minutes, had his attorney laughing. And then a week later he said no. And then a week after that he said yes. And then we went there and filmed the interview. It was two hours and it was fantastic. John Peters is awesome. And actually, even, uh, let's see, it was about two weeks after our premiere in L.A., and John Peters had heard through the grapevine, people, friends of his, had seen the film at the premiere and, and those subsequent dates, and had said to him, you, you're kind of the hero of this, you're kind of the star of this movie, you know, and your hair looks great, <laughs> um, and <laughs> it looks amazing. Um, and so he called John uh, 
two weeks after the premiere and, and wanted to congratulate him in person. And uh, so he hasn't seen the film yet. He's going to see the film. When we get back to L.A., he'll be seeing the film um, for the first time. We're going to screen it privately in his penthouse apartment on Wilshire Boulevard. Um, yeah, he has actually, he has like an elevator that goes directly to his apartment. It's like this, this it is very much like Bat, Batman. You know, it's like you just... Get on, and then there's John Peters. And then there's a skull ship right there. Oh, yeah, no, that was really cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, that, that was an amazing anecdote to know that he stole the prop because he knew that <laughs> everything was well, going to go to the I don't the know if he'd stole well, it. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. He rescued it. <laughs> he rescued it, yeah. Placed it inside of a weird glass cube. That was the yeah. first thing he said to us, actually. When we, when we walked into the, his beautiful apartment, which. I mean, you know, first thing you see is, well, first thing you see when you go in there is what you saw in the very beginning, which is that uh, Richard Branagh sort of weird mannequin in the, the wheelchair oh, with yeah. the, you know, from mm -hmm. Wild Wild West. But then you look around and you see, holy shit, there's a Modig Modigliani, there's a Matisse. You know, it's like this it is, he's such an old school Hollywood mega producer. Um, but yeah, it was, he, one of the first things he showed us though when we walked in was, He's like, there's the skull ship, if you want to see it. Like, there it is. Knuckles. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Loudly. Mallets. Meat claws. <laughs> you said it was a really small crew, but obviously it's really long credits, and that's because there's hundreds and hundreds of... Thousands. Thousands yes. of Kickstarter, and what was the, the fan uh, one? Fan-backed. Fan-backed. I've yeah. not heard of that one. Well, yeah, so primary, primarily it was Kickstarter. Fan-backed is a smaller crowdsourcing okay. thing, but... Uh, it, w it worked out. We, we went broke four times making this film, wow. which is awesome. I, I, I highly recommend getting broke well, multiple I, times. It's really kick-ass. I, I had to look at your fan-backed <laughs> fan uh, page earlier, and it's interesting that you were really honest with the people who were backing it, saying this is how much the following will cost. Mm -hmm. You know, rights, this kind of production, this kind of footage. So I guess every time you needed more money, you told the fans this is exactly what we need, and yeah. they well, helped you out. Well, that's the thing about Kickstarter or any kind of crowdfunding uh, campaign is it, it's a community. You know, these are the people that are making your film. These are the people who are contributing. So you have to keep them in the loop with everything you're doing. Mm. And that way they feel like they're an actual part of the, the process, which they are, because we mm. couldn't make it without them. So, um, so yeah, updates went out, you know, weekly and monthly about what was happening throughout the course mm. of the making of the film. Yeah, and I, I hit all the, the drug-fueled binges that I went on in, like, padded areas. I was like, this $4,000 expense <laughs> for my cocaine habit is... You know, it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, it's like, really, you break it all down. And then it's always the truth. It's always three times more. It doesn't, it's three times longer than you think it's going to take. It's three times more money than you think it's going to, I've, I've budgeted thousands of things. I know three times more. It doesn't even matter anymore. Now I just triple. And automatically, whatever budget I've come to, I triple it. And then I don't budge from that. I know. It's still impossible. Because then you're like, well, we have this money. You don't. Weird things just happen. You need to buy additional drives. Like even just drives, if you haven't budgeted drives, you have a four terabyte or a 12 terabyte or a 16 terabyte drive, that's a couple extra thousand dollars. But if you need to get six of them, guess what? You know, so yeah, yeah, it adds yeah. up. We were, we were completely flat broke when we came here to interview Tim. And we actually didn't know that we were going to get the interview. We, were, we came out here with the hope that we were going to get Tim. Um, but we had to be vetted first. So we went on a Wednesday. We talked with him for probably about 15 minutes. That was it. Um, and we bonded on, uh, I bonded on, on uh, children's illustration with him, and John bonded on horror films. Mm -hmm. And within about 15 or 10 minutes, he said, okay, I'll do this thing. And it was, it was great because he was, you know, he clearly got that we were coming from a good place. Mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, and that and then we shot it two days later, and that was it. One thing I wanted to ask about was this is almost like a new genre of documentary that's emerged over the last few years. I guess the first example would have been Terry Gilliam's Lost in La Mancha right. about uh, the man who killed Don Quixote not being made, and then there's also been the Jodorowsky Dune recently. Yeah. I mean, what do you think is this fascination about people wanting to know about films that just didn't quite get made? Well, it's also, I mean, there's several, I mean, on the internet, there's always like every year there's a, a roundup of films that didn't get made. There's also Terry Gilliam's Watchmen. There's a whole bunch of like Darren Aronofsky's Batman Year One. There's a whole bunch of these films that like, you know, then get shuttered. Uh, the fascination, I think, at least for me with Superman Lives was the what if and the boy, you know, I just, you know, after seeing a bunch of different iterations, I wish they made that one because I would like the chance to be able to, to watch it. In, not just in my mind, but to have seen it because I thought it sounded cool. Yeah. So I think that's what happens. I mean, there's several books written on the what-ifs of a bunch of different films that didn't get made. I mean, there's somebody who's going to make the George uh, Miller Justice League. They, yeah. Somebody just announced that. And uh, that's a person who followed me on my a – I do an AMC movie talk show in America. And he was a fan of that and then sort of just was like, I think, got influenced and inspired by it. So I was like – I just wrote him. I was like, "Hey, man, just make sure you uh, you know mention my goddamn film every time you like, because you're using the same credits and everything the way, kind of copying me." But it's hey, just make it make it good. That's all I said. I was like, "Good good luck," you know, because I myself I'm like he doesn't have John Peters though. I just I, a lot of people keep asking me, "Well, what's your next documentary?" Like it's it's always the what you just finished. And I was like, "Dude, did you notice that I directed cartoon shows for 15?" years well what's your next documentary it's really it's a weird thing to get square pegged so quickly so i'm not doing another documentary well if you come from cartoons i was just going to say do you think warner would now ever approach you to say actually could you make the superman lives animated film <laughs> yeah i wouldn't do it i mean <laughs> okay. i mean i hope they do someone i hope someone does it but to me that movie is done it didn't get made it stopped being made in 1998 and that's where it ends. It sort of ends there. There was no finished script. And if you're a filmmaker, you know it's like the script is a process. It's not the be-all, end-all, unless you're the writer, director, producer, editor, and you're in it. And you follow it all the way through. And still, it's going to transform. Mm. But when you have a script, it goes through all these different changes, all the way through the editing and sound design, everything. The actors, they all add and take away, put back in. Everything gets changed, and it's very malleable. So you could see all the different versions of like Kevin Smith's script, you know, Wesley Strick's script, uh, Dan Gilroy's script. The story beats are all the same, but they're completely different dialogue. It's completely different scenes. It's totally different. So you don't know what that final film would have been. So if you don't have Tim Burton involved in it, it's just not going to be Superman Lives. I wanted to uh, go back to the you know the various sort of what if happened. Uh, what if movies that have been coming down the pike? Each one of these films was in a different stage of development hell. So, for example, Jodorowsky's Dune, it, you had a, a Bible of concept art. You know, you, nothing was shot, nothing was in pre production at that point. Uh, you know, with, with Superman Lives, there was a lot done, you know, and with Lost in La Mancha, they were shooting. So, each one of these films is sort of a different example of this is how far you can get and have the rug pulled out from under you. So each story is completely different. You know, I, at this point, I don't know how far they got with George Miller's, you know, Justice League, but um, but that's going to be a different story too. So it's, you know, I think it's about the creative process and people are so fascinated with with how movies are made. You know, we see these blockbusters, but we don't really know what goes into making them. One of the things that John and I were so excited about with this was when we went to Tim Burton's studio and we got to look at, you know, we were there for two 16-hour days going through every single page of concept art and blown away by every single image we, we saw. And it was just, it's like you can see, 
like your heart starts to hurt. You're like, oh my God. But what was great was that we got to interview all the concept artists that actually made this stuff and they are never seen. No one ever talks to these people. So once they saw the film at our premiere, they were like, I'm so proud to be a part of this. This is so cool. They, and they hadn't seen their own work for over 16 years. It just got shelved away. And what she's talking about is Tim Burton gave us the keys to his like Raiders of the Lost Ark shop in Los Angeles. Now, not here in England. He was like, there you go. It's like, find it. And it was like, you know, walking through Edward Scissorhands and Mars Attacks. But then we got to these couple boxes of Superman Live stuff. And that's what we spent two days photographing. All This isn't even all of the art. This, like, this is like maybe 70% of it. But, I mean, you know. It's pretty. It was pretty fun, and it blew me away because I thought I was like, yeah, I got most of the art. I thought that's what I, I've been searching the internet for about two years. It can't. There might be a little bit left. And I was like, yeah, just a Krypton, you know, just so much. Look at these weird universes. Here's Doomsday, you know. We were talking to Nick Cage's manager for about um, almost well a year and a half. Um, and it was sort of a cat and mouse game for a while. Um, initially, you know, he'd already been asked because this, the Kickstarter was announced, and then in various junkets, the Crudes, for example, he was asked about it and what he thought about uh, the film, the documentary potentially being made. And he said, you know, I think it's a good idea. You, you heard him say that in the film, but in the very in that at that time, you know, he the internet sort of bullying of Nicolas Cage had uh, wasn't at full. <laughs> full volume at that point. So um, as that continued, he became more and more sort of reticent to participate. Um, and so we, you know, I kept in contact with Mike and I sh- we showed him a rough cut, a very early rough cut, and he said, I think Nick would really like this. But you know, at the same time, Nick is also wor- a working actor who's working all the time. So there was, a, there was a point around the time we were gonna film John Peters and there was a window of about a week where we could have gotten Nicolas Cage, and that was the time we were maybe going to meet with him. It was still kind of like he'd, he'd warmed to the idea, but ultimately he decided rather than coming back to Vegas, to his home, he would go from one film directly to the other. So he went from Morocco, I think, to New York and didn't come back, and that was the end of our window. And ultimately I don't think that the, the film loses anything for not having an interview with him now. Because you have him in the suit, you have him talking about the character, you have him working it out with Tim Burton, you know, both as Clark Kent and Superman, and it's like it's it's of a time and place, and that's where you really want to get the information anyway. So um, there is a chance. I'm not going to say I'm not going to say what's going to happen, but there's DVD a chance. DVD commentary. Well, well, I'll tell you this much. Okay, so uh, about two weeks ago, we got a call from Mike again, and he said he was so happy with, pleased with all the reviews, and he said Nick really wants to see the film. So hopefully, we will be able to show it to him within the next few weeks, um, and then we'll see where it goes. You know, I don't know if he's actually going to be able to sit down and talk with us, and you know, I mean, that would be amazing. But yeah, we're never leaving Las Vegas. We're just going to move in with him. We're going to hang out, and. uh, uh, we're not. I mean, we we already decided. Even if even if say we do talk to him, it would be an additional thing on the Blu-ray because the film is done, and it really feels like when we got that footage of Tim and Nick from 15 years ago talking, and like it's a fly on the wall type of perspective that you get to see the developmental process. So that to me is better than any of the actual possible interviews you could have with any of the actors that were like Kevin Spacey or even Christopher Walken, who's you know I want to see that Kevin Spacey and Christopher Walken with two heads arguing. <laughs> I and mean, that's like that's the thing that hurts. I'm like, God, I would love to see that, you know, 15 years ago. Can't do it now, but if back then. So, 
you, we cut to the ILM footage of Brainiac in that sort of viper thing that you get to see there. That, for me, is just like a, holy shit, how could we... N I mean, I'm so pissed off that I didn't get to see that on the big screen. Uh, for me, that absolutely nails it. I was... Perfect answer for me. Uh, it's tough. It's really tough, but I would say that the stuff that had the most impact for me was Brainiac by, by um, Michael Anthony Jackson. With all the kind of, like, you know, sort of... Uh, computer -y. He looks very, it's, it's not just the spider body, but it's that kind of intense, scary kind of Grim Reaper stuff that I really liked. Yeah, for myself, it was Krypton. It was all the outer space stuff. I really liked that interpretation, that weird kind of almost Dr. Seussy look. It was so radically different than everything that we've ever seen. Like, it's icy and cold, and here's some stalagmites, and a, bu a bunch of weird shards and a weird crystal. It's like, get rid of all that stuff. I'm tired of it. You know what I mean? It's like, that's, I mean, a lot of people didn't like Man of Steel. I liked it. And I liked it specifically because it did different things. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is why I enjoyed it. You know, you can argue about, you know, the, you know, the pa, like, don't save me from the hurricane. You know, there's a lot of issues. <laughs> I'm not going to fight that stuff. It's stupid. But most of it's pretty awesome. I thought it was a really cool reinvigoration of the character, and it brought that character into a now area, which I think, you know, now he's got to learn his lesson, and Batman's going to kick his ass. So that's kind of what, you know, they're like, he did 48 9-11s. He just let all those people die. It's like he was just Superman for one day, guys. Early on, they basically, you know, Warner and DC were like, we know what we're doing. We, we're aware of it. We're not going to help you in any way, shape, or form. But good luck with this. So, you know, I mean, I think that, it'll, you know, it remains to be seen. This film still hasn't been seen by, by very many people. You know, it's a very limited audience that's seen this. You know, one of the things, a follow-up to what you just said, I think that, uh, you know, after seeing this, once we put this together and saw it as a piece of, of work here as a film, uh, Warner's, in my opinion, at that particular time, if they would have followed through with this picture, it really would have been more a savior situation for them in their financial dilemma at that time, instead of, uh, uh, you know, cold feet and back away from it. So, you know, that's kind of, they didn't learn from that mistake. It's unfortunate, but... Uh, Let me triple add to that. <laughs> and here's a triple Sunday scoop for you. Um, Above and beyond, like Warner Brothers not making the film, I think, you know, when you don't make something, they try to bury it. And that's usually, that's usually what happens with every single film that you'll, you know, what happened to this film. They bury it, they shove it away, all these people sign rights things where they can't talk about it. So it takes someone else to be like, I, I, don't, I didn't sign anything. <laughs> you know, you can come in. Um, but you have to have a form of respect with the material. And it's a, like the way I approach it, I've worked for Warner Brothers for like 16 years on all these different projects. And so my approach to it wasn't, I wasn't like, I'm going to take Warner Bros. down for doing this thing. I'm going to embarrass them and this and that. Well, it never had any of that intention. It was more like, I'm just going to find out and no one's going to stop me. So it's like, that's the, my kind of approach about it. Like when people would say they don't want to be interviewed, I would be really respectful if they said no right away. But if they were like hemming and hawing, I'd call them back. I'd re-email them two or three months later. Like Sylvain, who is an awesome interview. He's an ex-concept artist, very has and tasty bitter edge to him but I wanted that in the film I desperately I was like dude I was like you're going to say stuff that a lot of other artists are not going to say it's so important he emailed me uh, after we had our premiere in LA and he said so do I need to go into witness protection now <laughs> yeah so to say that for Warner Brothers yeah they said they weren't going to help but they were also aware of the film and I think they're actually going to be really pleased with this film when they finally see it the top brass Warner Brothers or whatever because it's not actually any kind of an indictment it's, it's basically hey dude it's the truth like you had a series of bombs you couldn't make that 300 million dollar commitment no one's going to be angry with you you know it's like that's how I look at it. So, and also they'll probably sell more copies of the other Superman DVDs on the back of this. I, I agree. <laughs> I think it's only going to benefit them ultimately. Yeah. You know, it gets their name out there again. You know, and yes, this was a string of bombs that happened in the '90s, but it's it's got their name out there. Yeah. So, it made me want to see Sphere. <laughs> there is this. 
this curtain, this veil over Hollywood where you think you know what goes on, but you don't really know what goes on. You don't know how much work and how many man hours go into making something like this. And this, you know, especially with this film, it was such a unique situation with all of the various people that were involved and the artists and all this stuff that it's, um, it, it shows you how, how things get, get started uh, and, and how major corporations like Warner Brothers DC get sort of nervous. Well, for myself, yeah. To me, I felt like as I was going through the process of making the documentary and interviewing the artists and uncovering a lot of the artwork, I found it to be something that happens in, in every form of all media. There's always these films, television shows, pilots get made, and then no one gets to see them. So I myself have made three pilots that you'll never see. I've spent a year and a half working on different things that no one gets to see. So Until someone makes a documentary about it. <laughs> what happened to my weird secret vault? But uh, yeah, so seriously, it's like I totally empathize, empathized with Tim and like the two and a half years of his life that he spent and then just, you know, to have that thing severed, it's, it's messed up. But uh, for me, like the concept art and seeing that kind of stuff and knowing that exists on all these other levels could be inspirational for other companies to be like, look, there's a secondary market. Obviously, there's people interested in the not the final product, but the products that lead to the final product. So to bury all that stuff and just be embarrassed about it, you shouldn't be. You should be like, look, we tried this. We decided it didn't work for these different reasons. Here, here, put it on YouTube. Here, we could release it on Hulu Plus. Like Hulu has like, we've got the uh, the archived weird whatevers. You know, I don't know. I mean, there's. A, I just feel like at least making this documentary for me, it was. Uh, it felt really good. You know, it was a lot of work. We were like, you know, the every day for like the last eight months working on it. It was a lot to edit. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention, too, is that after we premiered it in L.A., um, we had a handful of people that worked on the film. We had Wesley Strick. Uh, we had, a, you know, a lot of the concept Timber artists, Gard, Tim Burgard, Bill Bowes, Michael Anthony Jackson, Rick Heinrichs. They all came to see the, the, the film. And at the end of the film, they all came up to us and said, thank you. Thank you so much. This is more than we ever expected from this documentary and there's so much about this film that we didn't even know about and thank you for giving us the time to actually to, to show what we do for more information about the death of superman lives documentary please go to tdoslwh.com where you can buy the movie as various extended digital downloads and on blu-ray and dvd if you enjoyed tonight's show and are a fan of all of Resonance FM's output, why not contribute to the Resonance FM auction, which is taking place all this week and is an important part of the fundraising efforts to keep Resonance FM on air. There are various items for sale on the Resonance FM eBay page, including a signed Dogma poster by Kevin Smith, a print of Green Goblin production art from the original Spider-Man movie, and a selection of Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes audio CDs, featuring Paul McGann and Sylvester McCoy. For more information about the fundraiser in general, please go to fundraiser.resonance.fm, and for the eBay page, please go to ebay.co.uk-sch-resonance-fm-auction. The Electric Sheep Film Show was presented, edited, and recorded by Alex Fitch, with music curated by Electric Sheep Magazine editor Virginie Selavy. We'll be back again on the third Wednesday of next month, with a repeat the following Thursday morning at 9. And you can find all previous episodes by going to www. 
electricsheepmagazine.com stroke events. To finish tonight's show, here's another classic track from Virginie's Soul and Blues collection. And to tie in with the theme of Superman, here's the clique. Thanks for listening. program was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.